is our children learning? You didn't build that. Because you'd be in jail. All men and women created by the go, you know the you know the thing. Those are the leaders of the past, but here at Gen Z GOP, we are looking to the future. Join us as we discuss how we can create a party that is worthy of our generation. Please clap. Well, it has been a while since we've been together here on the Gen Z GOP podcast. Uh, I'm John Olds, and I'm joined with my two new co-hosts, Javon Price and L. Kalish. Uh, they are both our national spokespeople. Javon is our director of external affairs, and Elle is also our comms director. Since we've been together, we've uh, we've been through hell and back, it seems. We've had an election. We've had the aftermath of the election. John decided to go on a sober January that kind of ended really quickly. Uh, the Nets traded for James Harden, which was weird. And um, we also had an insurrection, not to sort of put those on the same level, but a lot's happened since we've been together. But welcome to Javon and L. And I'm thinking that uh, this this podcast will just sort of set the scene for what is to come. Yeah, well, we're really excited to be here and be on the podcast now. It's definitely been an interesting week, to say the least. Definitely has been interesting. And I'm just going to go on and correct you off the bat. We actually got new titles. So I'm actually the vice president of external affairs and Elle is actually our vice president of comms. But it's a, it's a new switch we've had. Obviously, we've had a change in the board format since then. So we've had some internal changes. And obviously, the country has experienced uh, some changes as well. So um, looking forward to this conversation today. Yeah, I think that our organization looked at all of the different flaws and perceptions that people have, and we said, you know what, we we can't be directors anymore. We have to be VPs, and and suddenly it's true. everything Just the with title GOP was solved. Else. Swear we're not elitists. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 facelift, yeah. Let's just start off with with the election and the aftermath of the election. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? It was just bizarre on a number of levels. The election was crazy. Actually, Javon and I were together. Um, Vice News is following Javon around for the day. Yeah, they definitely were following me. <laughs> and so they were with him, I kid you not, 48 hours. And they would just follow his every move and like everything they would record. So I remember we were just like watching and looking at the TV. And early on, it looked like Trump had like a huge lead. And Javon was like really in great spirits. And I was pretty damn happy. And so then Javon goes to take a nap. And he leaves me awake with the vice producers and his fraternity brothers. And we're just kind of watching the TV. And things started to get a little bit more interesting. I went to bed with the lead and I woke up with us uh, behind. So It was like about dead even at the time. They had you in the first half, Javon. They had had us in the first lap, not going to lie. They sure as hell did. They sure as hell did. But, but that, but, you know, that, ex- yeah, I was going to say that experience in itself uh, was great uh, altogether. It's just a really cool experience. But in regards to the election, I think it's pretty fair to say um, I didn't expect the margin of, of victory from the now president elect Biden, to be quite frank. I thought it would have been a lot closer. But, uh, you know, that, that's just this reality and the way the way it turned out. I think it's pretty ironic that the same margin in which uh, the president beat 
uh, candidate Hillary Clinton was was the same margin that uh, unfortunately ensured his defeat. So, so what I'm hearing, what I'm hearing is that the Biden team didn't do as good a job at stealing the election as you thought they would do. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, here's the thing. I, I, you know, I guess I was going to wait a little bit until we jumped into it. But I, I, I think there are valid concerns about electoral integrity uh, and the way in which some states, you know, enacted election reform. Uh, so you know, let's take a, uh, you know, uh, the, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and we see their state Supreme Court coming down with a ruling that, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, changed or enacted some type of electoral reform which in itself isn't a problem. The issue is um, if you look at the Constitution, Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2, the argument that some, I'm not going to say all, but some Republicans have made is that um, there's a disconnect. The Constitution mandates that any election law is going to have to go through state legislatures. And the fact that such a monumental election law went through the Supreme Court technically you know, doesn't fit or doesn't, you know, isn't, you know, for lack of a better word, constitutional in many ways. Uh, so that I think that was a big concern that some proponents of the president had. Now, for conversations or arguments regarding, you know, millions of illegal votes or anything of that jazz, I'm not sure that um, or how valid that concern may be. Yeah, I think it's this thing, too, of I don't think anyone's claiming that there wasn't any voter fraud, that there was none at all. But I think that the bigger point there is when you're explaining this, if you're a congressman and you're explaining to people that elected you and the people that are looking up to you and looking for you to kind of make a statement on the election. And all you say is there was election fraud, but then don't follow it up with the second sentence of. There was election fraud, but Joe Biden won the election legitimately by a wide margin. Then no wonder people are convinced that the election was stolen because the people that they look to to tell them to, you know, decide fact from fiction refuse to include the context. The context got left out. I think another thing I'm having a problem with is people objecting to the election but not raising the idea of an election committee that, you know, like reviews it until two months after the election. Like you've been in Congress this entire time. You have had the ability to ask for this the day after the election. Why did you wait until two weeks before inauguration? You know, I would just add on to that. You see someone like Senator Tim Scott, who's actually putting his money where his mouth is and is trying to introduce a bill in the Senate to investigate some of the electoral concerns that Americans have. And I think for better or for worse, that's a great idea to to assure some some of those who may feel disenfranchised, may feel like the electoral process wasn't fair or and or free. That is, I think that's the best method of moving forward. And I think there's a stark difference between what the Senate, what Senator Tim Scott had done versus someone like Senator Ted Cruz, which seemed a little opportunistic in a way. And I, I, I think it's hard to doubt that once you see things like the fundraising email that followed and people made con, you know complaints that it was sent during the insurrection, essentially, 
However, that tells you to, or at least to me, that it was scheduled. And the reason he was doing that is to fundraise. As for Senator Hawley, y'all's guess is as good as mine. I have no idea what the hell he was trying to do. You you mean the heir apparent? I mean, <laughs> I mean that guy is on something special. It's it's really quite astonishing. It's hard to be that bad at being an opportunist. Like usually opportunists are conniving. The problem with Josh Hawley is that he knew what he was doing. You know, Josh Hawley likes to make him seem himself that he's this populist that's here to kind of save middle America and stand up to the government for the little guy. But meanwhile, you have someone that like definitely has that backstory, you know, growing up in Missouri, all of that, but then went and got an Ivy League education. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm not saying that invalidates his struggle or anything like that. But what I'm saying is that person is educated. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he was saying. He knew the impact of what he was saying. He knew the pe- the type of people that elected him. He knows what his friends and neighbors and people he went to school with all think and how they think. And he had all this education, all of this political experience. And despite that, he still did. And I, and I think as conservatives, we can sort of look back at one of the points that Javon made earlier about how the Constitution lays out how we are supposed to hold elections and how they're supposed to be governed by state legislatures. I think that's a really legitimate constitutional concern and one that conservatives, not today, but 20 years ago, if this happened, it would have been the same conversation. But I think that that's different than sort of manifesting this widespread fraud complaint And I think the other sad part is not that it's just a fraud complaint. It's a fraud orthodoxy that's been sort of drilled into people that it's not so much that, oh, I think something fishy went on or I think the process was wrong. It's no, I know for a fact that the election was wrongly called. And that's where the sort of delineation needs to be, at least in my estimation, uh, about what happened. I think you make a compelling point. I would also like to bring up the the fact that this idea of electoral reform isn't new. It's not something that 2020, even though it was a crazy ass year, it is not something that's truly unique to this year. Democrats have objected to election results in the past three elections in which they have lost. The only difference is they didn't have someone like a President Trump who has such an amazing influence on Uh, you know, the Republican electorate and was able to lead that charge. And so this idea that somehow claims about election fraud are rooted in white supremacy or in racism or anything like that, about the disenfranchisement of black and brown voters, it's not something that I buy. That doesn't make sense to me. If there's a true electoral concern, the question is to get to the bottom of it. And you have many members of Congress who have said, hey, look, even if the president still loses after we fix the problems, or even if the problems aren't addressed necessarily as soon as we want, these are still claims that are worth investigating. And if we personally are going to strive to be a more perfect union, that means the American electorate having some type of faith in the electoral process. And if that's not there, or if there are 74 million people who feel like it's not there, that's a problem. That's a failure uh, in, in congressional leadership. It's a failure in, in, honestly, the American political establishment. 
Yeah, Javon, I totally agree. And I think my problem, though, is again, kind of something that I mentioned earlier, is that we knew the election result a week afterwards, most of the votes were counted, all of that stuff, all of these allegations of fraud existed then. So I want to know why there was a huge conglomerate of people in Congress that didn't care, didn't speak out about it until two weeks before the inauguration. I, I, I obviously I can't speak for members of Congress and why they decide to do what they do. But what I can say is that there is a difference in those, I think, who had earnest constitutional concerns and those who are, again, opportunists. Now, I just don't think that distinction is made in the mainstream media. I agree. I think oftentimes it's just look at Republicans. They're trying to, again, disenfranchise Black voters. They don't want them to vote. That's not accurate. I'm a Black voter. I voted. I voted for the president. So the idea that somehow I would be disenfranchised by a, con- by a valid constitutional concern that should provoke some debate. We should have questions about this. And granted, it's during a pandemic. I get it. But I think the greater question that is at hand is even if we have something like a pandemic, does that mean we can curb around the Constitution? Obviously, this is a unique national security situation and it's a health concern for sure. But does that mean our Constitution is not malleable enough or strong enough to survive that? And if so, is it okay to amend that? I think that's what the conversation should have been. And I think that's honestly where it still could go, even after President Biden, President-elect Biden, excuse me, is inaugurated. And yeah, but but the the sort of natural follow-up to that, and I guess hindsight is 2020, you look at some of these states like Georgia and Arizona and Pennsylvania and Michigan, all of whom have Republican-controlled state legislatures. And I think it's important to sort of note that as Republicans and as conservatives, when you're picking your battles, if you're going to, you know, pull one argument like, you know, this election was illegitimate because of process, you need to be consistent on that and be fighting against that narrative from the start. You can't just pass a bunch of laws and say, hey, wait a second, what we did was wrong. Uh, so again, it's it's not perfect, but consistency is, is key. I think that's a fair argument. I mean, I think it's, and here's what I'll say though. This is an argument, right? It's a debate. I don't think there is one right answer. And I think oftentimes in the media, it gets misconstrued as if there is a right way to have this conversation because I can guarantee if the tables were turned, Democrats will be asking the same questions. I mean, think about it. We, I don't hear any or much debate about getting rid of the electoral, um, the electoral college now that president elect Biden will be inaugurated in five days time. I don't hear this same level of anger or or people aren't as incensed about it as I think that they were four years ago. So we have to understand that sometimes, you know, these big constitutional concerns are provoked by people who are upset, which is fine. I think many major movements in this country are based off of people who are angry, civil rights, uh, gay rights, women's rights. That's fine. Anger is a powerful motivator. But we have to recognize that this isn't just spontaneous in nature. It's, 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 It's something that is normal in the course of the American discourse. As for what happened last week on the Capitol, that to me is something completely different. Yeah. So I think that's where I want to like pivot and try and go to in a moment is this idea of 
to what level are the congressmen that objected to the election? I'm not even saying just objected. I mean, the congressmen that full spread just completely lied to everyone saying that it was a stolen election. I want to know to what extent are they responsible for what happened? But not That's even such that. A hard question now. At what point do we say you're not doing the job that you were elected to do? And I think, you know, we have this conversation internally with the org a lot, but we have to understand that the places where these congressmen represent are very much so rural places, places that don't get talked about very frequently. Yeah. And I think what's really frustrating lately is that I feel like congressmen aren't understanding the responsibility that comes with that. When these people are so disenfranchised, already so incredibly upset with the government, why are you handing them a reason not to trust us? And I think it's this idea of, do you realize that what you did now doesn't just go away now that the election is over, that this follows us into the next election. This follows us not only to 2022, 2024, like that past all of that. This follows us for as long as we can remember, you have to understand that not only are there 74 million people are upset that their candidate didn't win, but now there's a huge chunk of that 74 million people that thought the election was completely stolen and their congressmen who they elected, who they trust with power enough to represent them in Congress and in government are telling them that they're right to think the election was stolen. Yeah. And is that not a complete use of your misuse of that power? Don't you have a responsibility to the people that elected you to protect them? Because are you really protecting them from the government if the government is the one that's feeding them lies? Yeah, that that again, sort of sort of a hard question when you're, I guess, assigning blame like that. I think that there's probably different bundles of Republican members of Congress. You know, you have your your Andy Biggs and your Paul Gosars and your Louis Gomerts of the world that are. And your Mo Brooks. Yeah. And your Mo Brooks who spoke at the rally on the ellipse. Those guys are really revving people up. But, but John, let, yeah. let me just say I, this question to me is almost impossible Yeah, because do I fault the, the president for what he said at the rally? Absolutely not. I don't think so at all. I think that it's very easy to put blame on it, but his rhetoric has not changed. He said stuff like, we have to fight back. We have to be strong. I mean, frankly, it's a legal battle. They're in court. Now, I don't want to come off as an apologist because I will say that I think his reaction to the events was where many people have found the concern. Monday morning quarterbacking to me is the worst thing in the world. It's very easy to say, well, they shouldn't have said that. They shouldn't have said this. He's been saying the same thing. And frankly, he's entitled to challenge these, you know, the issues that he has through uh, legal avenues and through political avenues. And frankly, object the objection to the certification in some states is a political avenue that they have at hand. We knew it wasn't going to pass. We knew they didn't have the numbers to overturn anything. So we have to understand that in their actions as a completely symbolic and political move to make it seem that somehow it was in the realm of possibility that this was going to pass is just asinine to me. And I don't think you can really you know, fault 
the individuals who spoke at that rally. Because ultimately, you as an individual are responsible for the actions that you take. If I tell you to fight for your rights, that doesn't mean you go out there and kill somebody. That And, and, and then you look at me and say, well, you're the one to blame. I get it. These people love the president because he spoke for a lot of what he has personally said. They're forgotten men and women, as he should. That's why he was elected. But to then and try and flip that and say he incited that, I, I don't I don't necessarily buy that. I, I, I don't I don't see that because you had plenty of Democratic congressmen who told Black Lives Matter and Antifa that they should go out there and fight against a fascist president and they should take back their rights before we slip into autocracy, excuse me. And they were not blamed for any of the violence that ensued in cities like D.C. where I am, in New York, and in Wisconsin, you know, in cities in Wisconsin and L.A. So there's a little bit of a double standard to me and how this situation is being evaluated. Again, president's response, problematic. And that's being nice. It's problematic. But the the I, I've seen an article that said he organized a mob and sent them to raid the Capitol. I, I just I, I don't buy that logic. I, I think that's a stretch at best. And I don't know how you can say that that is what yeah, he had in mind. So, I, so I just in, incitement or, or not, I do think that that it is going back to what else said. You have a responsibility as a uh, as a public official. And I think that you you bring up an interesting point about how the objections to certifications were for many folks symbolic, but I don't think that for many voters they were symbolic. They were a very real thing. I mean, it was thought, at least in some circles, that Vice President Pence was going to get up to that rostrum and that dais and, and read off a different number and read off a different vote count. And I think that that's a really concerning thing. And for me, that's sort of where the line is. You know, you can, politics for for centuries has always been about manipulating people and manipulating voters. And as as sad and indecent as that may be, well, it's political. Yes, of course. And I, I think that the pearl clutching, some of the pearl clutching about, oh, where is decency? I, okay, yeah, I, I could you know, spare me that to an extent, but there has to be a line. You know, if we're going to live in a, a society that's civilized and have a constitutional republic, there's got to be a line where we can be okay with saying, okay, you know what, folks, uh, you, it was a little too far this time, or we, we shouldn't have led you down this path. And I do think our leaders have a certain responsibility, whether it's incitement or not is sort of a separate question, but like, my God, you can't, uh, lead people to believe something that just isn't true. Yeah, so I totally agree. But I think that it comes down to this too. I think that we've had a large discussion, um, I mean, like between Republicans or those that consider themselves moderates, um, and the words like institutions and norms get thrown around a lot. Like, how can we do this? It's disrespecting our institutions and norms. Um, and I think that that's like a very simple thing for someone that's level-minded or someone that is involved in the political sphere or maybe someone that lives in D.C. or someone that just keeps up with politics. But the words institutions and norms mean absolutely nothing exactly. to any of the people that Donald exactly. Trump Donald Trump. Why would I care? And so I think that's the thing. And I think that we've gotten to this crossroads within the Republican Party that we have to kind of find the sweet spot. 
we have to find the sweet spot between obviously caring for our institutions and norms. That's part of being a conservative is respecting what our government is and respecting the process that we hear to protect us from this sort of thing. Exactly. But at the same time, does that really matter? And does that become a branch of the ideology if the people who are voting just don't care? Or just don't understand it. I, and so we have, we can go one of two ways. We can continue to go down this path, which obviously we saw what that led to, where we just go so far to one side where it's like, you know what, screw it. Screw anything that's traditional. Let's try something new. And we saw that work in some cases. I, you know, I'm a firm believer that there are millions of people that voted for Donald Trump that will never, ever vote again, oh, simply absolutely. because his name's not on the comment. Absolutely. And so it's this idea of now that we're, you know, looking to reform the party, is there space for including some of those non-traditional aspects in the sense of, is there space to take what we're talking about, making it more consumable, but also making sure that it's sent home to those people that feel like they're forgotten right now. Well, it's institutions and norms that frankly screwed over so many of these people. So I think we have to, like, let's take something like globalism, right? And globalists. There are so many people who have felt disenfranchised. And what the president did is he said, I'm here for you. We can talk about things like his support of blue collar workers, his his disdain for political correctness and telling people that they have to, you know, watch every little thing they say because God forbid you might be offended. Let's talk about criminal justice reform and getting criminals out of prison and allowing them the dignity of work and allowing them to get back into the labor force. These are things that this president made priorities and it spoke to a huge demographic. I think that's why you see a working class coalition that voted for this president. I think that's why you see a doubling of the amount of black voters, specifically black men who might've voted for this president, the doubling in voters of Latinos and LGBTQ plus Americans. These things didn't just happen in a vacuum. And I always tell myself the president's policies were persuasive and they worked. The only and I say this in air quotes, fault, or one of the challenges that I think this administration particularly faced is dealing with a media and big tech and all of these things who frankly lean to the left. And I think that was one of the bigger issues. It's very difficult to persuasively argue your point when I think a lot of the institutions have called Republicans racist. Let's not forget George Bush was apparently racist at some point in time. Now liberals love him. Mitt Romney was the worst thing since sliced bread. Now apparently I saw a poll on Axios that 64% of liberals think he's doing the right thing and that he's standing up for democracy, but I thought he was a racist. So let's have this genuine conversation about, uh, you know, when's the next time we're going to call Wolf? And I think that's what the issue is with so many of the president's base is that for so long they've been condescended towards. They've been told their issues don't matter. They've been discarded. They were called deplorables at once point in the time. So there are valid concerns that I think many people in the president's base had. And again, I'm not saying this as a justification for the rhetoric. All I'm saying is that this is a two-way street. One party is not wholly responsible for the political environment that we now live in today. It's been cultivated by you know both parties. Let me press you on what you just said. Really yeah, quickly. go ahead. So in this, it's the sense, you know, you're, you're obviously, I think you have great points in the sense of, I, one, I do think that the media is slighted towards the left. It's not even a thought. Right. But in, I mean, we've seen it firsthand with, you know, like things that we've done with the org. Absolutely. But I think my point being 
is that how do we fix that and how do we move that going forward? And then to push you on kind of what you said before is are the gains that were made when, you know, we saw a whole ton of new women get elected into Congress. And we saw, you know, the fact that the freshman Republican class this year, most of them are either a minority, a veteran or an immigrant, most of them being two of those things Mm -hmm. or a woman. Do those, the success of them, does that get credited to the president? Or is that the fact that the Republican Party is just getting smart? So I think think my question there is like, young Kim, you know, I think we saw the California GOP really fumble the bag, you know, a few cycles ago. Yeah. But they also doubled down. They looked at themselves in the mirror and look what they just did. It's crazy. What I think we realized as a party going into this election cycle, this past election election cycle, excuse me, is we have to tailor our message to the demographic that is present. If you look at someone like Young Kim, like Burgess Owens in Utah, like Byron Donalds in Florida, like Nicole Maliotakis in New York, they ran essentially on the president's policies and had their own personality to back that up. So it's a two-way street. The issue that I don't see us having right now is something like what we see in the Senate, where I think, with all due respect to Senator Hawley, he's trying to, which I think is generally a bad idea, is to be Trump but not be Trump. I think that's a losing strategy. I think you're better off running on the policies that this president enacted and then giving voters your personality and saying, evaluate me. I think conservative policies are generally better for America. That's why I am a hardcore Republican. However, we have to understand a New York Republican is going to be different than a Florida Republican, which is going to be different than someone like Congressman Ronnie Jackson in Texas. Like They're just different. And that is okay. Unlike the Democrats, which, you know, we don't have litmus tests to be a candidate. I think we got smart at running the right candidates in the right districts to speak to the people in uh, in which they represent. Yeah. So, John, I'm going to pivot that to you to ask your opinion on that, Mr. Campaign (laughs) Manager over here. Uh, going into this next cycle. Successful. Successful campaign campaign manager. Thank you for the success. (laughs) Some respect on his name. So fun story like about that though. Javon and I were together on election night and we found that John run his race. And so somewhere out there is the most adorable B-roll of us like freaking out and being so excited. For I took a shot for you, John. I took a shot for you. I was, sure we, we were in this dive bar up in Newbury, Massachusetts, and we were all sort Not of really. socially distanced. And it was sort of like the beginning of COVID wave two right there in the beginning of November. And they kicked us out at 930 because COVID doesn't spread after 930. So we're all out in the parking lot huddled around our laptops. We're trying to like siphon off the Wi-Fi. It was a stressful night, but it was, it was a good, good time. But sort of to that end, yeah, it's important to run the right candidates in the right areas. And I think that a lot of a lot of times in the past, conservatives said, oh, no, we're not going to run identity politics. We're going to stick to our principles and and not see color, or, you know, excuse X or excuse Y. And it's like, no, I mean, a lot of the conservative principles and a lot of the conservative aesthetic is actually very appealing to a lot of communities, whether it's minority communities or LGBT communities or, you know, women, 
or even younger voters, which is the point of Gen Z GOP, that, but, but you need to actually engage on those issues and you need to actually engage right. on those topics because they actually matter to people. Because for us as political people, they're just abstract things that we throw around in the name of winning. But those voters, it's their lives. And that stuff, that stuff matters to them. And, and if Republicans are just seen as like these stuffy people that run cookie cutter campaigns, regardless of the district or state you're in, you're going to run into problems and you're going to lose. Yeah. So, John, I, I kind of want to go off of that in this sense of when we're running candidates, I think something that we, you know, we should learn from in the sense of how bad the Democrats did I think, look, look, there's a lot of attention around the Democrats right now with how they won Georgia um, and how like now they have a majority in the Senate, which is barely a majority, Um, you know, but what this means and something that we saw really hurt them in the general election that I think everyone is forgetting about is that we were never supposed to have the Senate. When we were going into the election, we were going to lose four or five seats. Yeah. Yeah, Joni Ernst was supposed to lose to that Teresa Greenfield person up in Iowa <laughs> or something. And Cal, and Cal Cunningham and his Facebook messenger were supposed to be in the Senate, too. I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember that. Yeah, but I think it's this thing of just like, we thought that we were going to lose so bad, right? And then we saw the Democrats. Like, I think that's my thing, too. This election was easy for them. Do you know what I mean? Like everything was lined up for them. It should have been a cakewalk. They should have had the Senate in twofold. They should have grown their majority in the House. And that just didn't happen. And so, you know, people got caught, you know, that phone call between Nancy Pelosi and Abigail Spanberger, where she goes off about being like, we can't have our platform be defund the police. But I think that brings to a bigger point about national platforms and how they yeah. don't work. Yeah, and you're right. And the, the nation is is heterogeneous, and that's important to understand. But like, I look at someone like Young Kim, where Joe Biden won her district by 10%. That's, and she won her election. Well, and you know why she won? She won because she ran the better yeah. campaign. And our policies work. I, and then here's the thing. I really do think we lost in a state like Georgia because from I, you know, my, my friends in Georgia who were there, they said, you saw John Ossoff on every single corner. He was outside of McDonald's. He was outside of barbershops. He's young. There's the Kennedy effect there. He's present. He's omnipresent. So that running a good campaign, we cannot discard how important that is in in people's decisions. I think a lot of people would feel more comfortable voting for someone across party lines or maybe even being persuaded to vote for someone or even not, depending on the campaign that they run. And I think that that's a good wrap on this, but we'll continue to talk about end of the 2020 election cycle, but we'll also be bringing new content, which I'm personally super excited about, talking about a lot of the issues that the Republican Party can engage on and maybe hasn't engaged on as well in the past. And successfully engage on, if I might add. Yeah, no, it's it's one thing to just talk about them, but it's another thing to actually change hearts and minds and actually connect with actual voters. So I think that's a wrap on episode one, guys. I hope you all enjoyed uh, Javon and Elle's additions to our podcast. And be sure to follow us on social media at Gen Z GOP dot org um and yeah that's all for today guys thank you 
All right. Appreciate you guys. All right. Talk to you guys later. Thank <laughs> you.